Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. You're listening to a bonus episode of On the Tape. This is a recording of a conversation I had last week at Zeta Live with Packy McCormick of Not Boring Capital and the newsletter of the same name and Keith Grossman, the president of Time Magazine. The name of the panel was called NFTs, the year they take the main stage. We had a broad conversation on NFTs, their utility, and where they're going. So tune in. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank you, uh, David Steinberg and Zeta, for uh, allowing us to be here. Um, listen, you guys, uh, this is going to get two days of amazing conversations about digital transformations and marketing and the like. And so, um, you know, I am uh, honored to be here with uh, Keith Grossman, the president of Time, um, that really amazing, uh, you know, publication with the red border that we've all grown up reading here and hearing a little bit about how they're thinking about moving this 100-year-old publication uh, into the next 100 years. And then Packy McCoy. McCormick, um, you know, Packy's come onto the scene. He is literally, to me, one of the foremost thought leaders in Web3. Um, and a lot of what we're going to be talking about in this session, um, these guys are right at the intersection of it all. And I'm really um, glad for them to be here. Um, I want to start with Packy. Um, just so you know, we're gonna, I want him to define what Web3 is, because a lot of the stuff that you guys are focused on are really about the last 20 years of digital marketing, which was phenomenal and, and, the, and the pace in which things changed, that sort of thing. But I'd love Packy to define what Web3 is. His definition is actually quoted quite often. And the other thing is, he may not say this, in Web3, you guys don't need the blue blazers anymore. So that's the cool thing. So Zeta Live 2022, probably no blue blazers. Packy, <laughs> take it over, man. Um, I mean, if you win the Oculus, you don't even need a physical body <laughs> anymore, right, which, is, right. which is great. Uh, you can hang out in the metaverse. But yeah, I mean, I, I think the Web3 definition is still kind of wide open. People are, people are interpreting it in different ways, which is really exciting. The one that I've been using is that it's the next evolution of the internet, owned by the people who build and use it, orchestrated by tokens. And so there's a lot of buzzwords in there. But essentially what it means is that if you know, Web 1.0 was kind of the read-only version of the internet, you'd go to a website, you'd read some things. Web 2.0 is read-write, you can go onto Facebook, you can easily contribute. Kind of the trade-off that you made in Web 2 was you know, really hard. I couldn't send a newsletter like I send now in Web 1 because I'm not technical enough to build on SMTP. Web 2, centralized entities came in and made it really, really easy to do all sorts of stuff. The exchange obviously was that you gave up your data, you logged into sites, you didn't own the content that you created in a lot of different cases. Web 3, ideally, is a combination of the convenience of Web 2.0, except for that people own the content that they contribute, they own their own data, they have it in their wallet, and they can bring it with them across the internet. Yeah, and that's a really important framework for this discussion as we get into NFTs. And one of the fascinating things about having Keith here, because Keith has a very storied background as a journalist. I mean, like a traditional journalist coming up over, well, yeah, you know, pretty pretty good stuff well, on, there. On the publishing side, but not as a journalist. Well, in journalism, I mean, <laughs> yes. like that's right. Publishing in journalism, correct. Um, so talk to 
us a little bit about, because I go to Twitter and I look at Keith and I see um, some JPEG, it's a, you know, it's a crypto, something there, and I see Keith.Grossman.eth. How did you go from you know, traditional publishing to where you are at time? You've been there a little more than two years or about two years now, and you are just all in on Web3, and, and I assume this is driving a lot of the thought process with Time Magazine right now. Sure, so um, first, Thank you so much for having me, David. Thank you, as always, and to Zeta. You know, and, and Packy, I love your definition, right? Like, it's so spot on. And the way that I also think about it is, is in Web 2, um, if, if the equation for Web 2 is platform um, meets creator, reaches consumer, uh, Web 3 is actually the inverse. It's, it's consumer or community uh, sort of supports a uh, creator, which is then enveloped by a platform. And it's a really weird flip. And then the other sort of thing that's really important to sort of take into account with the Web 2 to Web 3 sort of evolution is, in Web 2, you exist online as a renter. But on Web 3, and Packy says this, right, you exist online as an owner. And I think that that shift from rentership to ownership is really key. In thinking about sort of your marketing strategy, your brand evolution, and how you interact with the, your consumer base and sort of what your freedoms are as a brand. Um, my background is actually um, not as a journalist, but on the business side. And uh, you know, while I represent a 98-year-old brand and I might look younger than 98 years old, I really am like a 98-year-old Jewish guy from New York City, and I just want to warn you all on that, right? And so... So David's your older brother then? Yeah, da 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 uh, yes, oh, David okay. is my so, older so, brother. Yeah, so um, uh, that's why we get along so well. And um, uh, you know, I started my career at Wired, and um, I think it's always important to understand sort of like someone's background to understand why is certain things happening somewhere. But I started my career at Wired and, uh, and then ultimately took over Ars Technica uh, and then went to Bloomberg Media and then ultimately to uh, Time. Um, at Wired, you know, we were very keen on launching the tablet edition when iPads were coming out, right? At Ars Technica, we started to see that there was a lot of data sort of making itself available and so we created a predictive algorithm to see if something was going to go viral. At Bloomberg Media, we saw the convergence of mobile social video, and we launched QuickTake. Right? It was initially TikTok, and then it became QuickTake. And then at time, there was no plan for us to enter into the um, NFT space. There was no plan for us to enter into crypto space. When I joined Time, I asked Mark and Lynn and Edward, you know, um, uh, Mark and Lynn being our owners, um, like, why did you buy this brand? And they said. They didn't like the state of media, they didn't like the state of journalism, and they wanted to preserve this objective red border through it. And they wanted to make sure that it could survive for the next 100 years. And when you think about that, right, survival is not going to be by remaining in the status quo. I love, David, your definition of never waste a good crisis. Um, I never thought about it through the lens of the opportunity cost being so low that it makes no sense of, of, of evolving, but I will be stealing that moving forward. <laughs> Um, so thank you. Um, but like we went in and we had a whole plan. And you know, like I actually sort of adhered to the great philosopher Mike Tyson's sort of edict of, uh, you know, everyone has a great plan until you get punched in the yeah. face, right? And, um, and really what happened was in February of this year, um, something occurred, which was there was this auction uh, that took place um, with Nyan Cat, and it sold for $600,000. And Mark had sent it to Edward and I, and I looked at it, and something just clicked, and it was really sort of my personal passion for the crypto space, right? And, and um, 
realizing that I could apply it to my professional responsibilities at time. And what I saw was, was uh, what was emerging was this shift into online ownership and that it was a very real shift that people, if they realized that they were going to be online often, they didn't want to exchange their data for, um, uh, for exposure. They wanted to own an asset and allow that asset to allow them to ultimately become part of a community. So if you look at, at these NFTs and you simply dismiss them as JPEGs, what you're really missing is what's happening underneath the surface, which is these incredible communities that are emerging that are literally attached to the JPEG, and the JPEG is as representative of the individual as your clothing is, as a luxury item is, yeah. as a car is. And so we started off with one-on-ones uh, you know, and treated it as fine art. We ultimately went to um, accept cryptocurrency for digital subscriptions. You can go to time.com slash hodl, which is my bad sense of humor, which stands for hold on for dear life uh, in the crypto world. Um, uh, we did deals with partners where we accepted Bitcoin and held it on our, on our books so we could see what it was like and we hold it to this day. Um, we are gonna announce a deal soon where we'll be holding Ethereum on our books, but we already hold Ethereum on our books um, uh, through the NFTs. And then um, we ultimately uh, launched timepieces yep. in September. And to give you an idea, that was 5,000 pieces that we put out there, but the pieces were not just pieces of art. They're attached to a Discord community that now has 8,000 members in it in five weeks, right? A Twitter community that, that you know, has, we've done nothing to market it and has organically grown to close to 5,000 people. Um, uh, it's done, and this will sort of hopefully catch all of your attention, $50 million in secondary sales oh. since September. Um, and we split the revenue um, in the secondary sales with the artists 50-50 after we um, donate a percentage to charity. Oh. And so like, this is not just a movement that we're seeing take place. This is a real, real business opportunity that you should not sleep on. Yeah, so that's a great segue. You know, Packy, I've been reading Not Boring, his newsletter. I'm sure a lot of you guys read it. And really, it started out as the intersection of Web3 and, and all these other you know, platforms that have come before it. And then at some point, there was an inflection for you where you just went, all in. So it started out as a passion, right? You were a yep. former entrepreneur, um, an investor, but at some point in 2021, a switch flipped in your mind and you've just been nonstop on this. And it sounds like, and we're going to get to this Constitution Dow, you get tripped up all the time because new interesting stuff pops up on discords. Maybe it's timepieces, maybe it's other ones, and you just get sucked in, right? Mm -hmm. So for you, how did you go um, from Web3 writer, pontificator to like practitioner in the NFT space, and you're, you're kind of all in here. Yeah, I'm all in. So I would say in January is really when I wrote my first essay on Web3, and at the time I was like, I think the audience is going to think this is very weird, uh, but I'm seeing this thing happen where particularly when you think about gaming and the fact that people are paying the game or the studio or whoever the owner uh, of the game is to buy digital items, and then if they stop playing the game, those digital items no longer have any worth, what if you could just sell digital items that then you could sell back to the community or sell back to somebody who wants it at the end or who give you special privileges in a game and then in other game worlds, what does that world look like? And so I was just kind of exploring that 
that kind of intersection and what happens to the value chain when people have ownership of their digital assets. And really what happens is that more value accrues to the creators uh, and then more value accrues to the consumers. And so that was really fascinating to me, but I was like, all right, I'm, I'm gonna write about Web3 once, and then I'm gonna write about Web3 once a month, and then I'm gonna write about Web3 <laughs> twice a month, but I'll still do some non-Web3 <laughs> And now I'm yeah. tweeting about Web3 every 15 <laughs> minutes. And it's so fascinating, I think to your point, it's really easy to get shiny object syndrome in the space. So I, I think probably to, you know, to the, the audience here, if you're, if you're thinking about it through the lens of marketing, my suggestion would be figure out how you can authentically interact with Web3 in a way that makes sense for your brand. Because otherwise, if you just go chase everything that happens, it's going to be a really confused and muddled message. And, and on that note, I, I think it's really important. First is, is like, um, I know for, for us and for me with time, right, I entered in on a very specific approach, which was one of one pieces. Um, and then I actually didn't do anything other than listen to the community and engage with the community and see sort of where our place could be. Right, and um, from there, that was the launch of timepieces. Uh, the thing that I would caution you about is, um, uh, if you enter in disingenuously, like the opportunity for you to rebound is is very sort of, um, uh, I would say, low. And so, uh, I would I would take your time and study the community before you just jump in. And if you do jump in, think about how are you going to extend it not just as a one-off, right? So, I mean, I can and I, I won't, but I could name, you know, a hundred brands and celebrities that jumped in that I could tell you when you listen in Twitter spaces every day, like, they're slammed, they're not lauded because they're, they're perceived as money grabs. Yeah. Um, the flip side of it is if you slow down and you actually pay attention to what's happening, uh, I think that what you could find is, is as a brand, you can have a different type of relationship with your consumer. And that relationship is so powerful that that consumer will become a brand advocate because the one thing you will see in Web3 is that the people who own some of the assets in Web3, and they range, sometimes they're timepieces, sometimes they're CryptoPunks, sometimes there's something as, as you know, uh, arbitrary as, as a cool cat. And you might laugh when I say that, but I told somebody to buy a cool cat a few months ago for $1,600. If you tried to buy a cool cat today, it's $30,000, right? And so like, when you start to look at this and you start to realize like, what's happening, you have this opportunity to build a relationship with a community where the community becomes your brand advocate and it changes your whole entire marketing profile. Yeah. And it's really interesting. Yeah, there was an interesting, uh, you know, Packy in August, I think it was, you wrote a post called Nifty Corporates. And it was right after Visa had spent $150,000 for a crypto punk. And it really set off the marketing world, at least from where I sit, like on fire. And they probably got millions, maybe tens of millions of dollars of, of free marketing around that. And then Budweiser jumped in. And so I think Keith's point about authenticity is interesting because I think initially when people saw that tweet or that headline, they were very skeptical. And then they're thinking about it differently in this new kind of ethos. Um, you had a quote in Nifty Corporates, Packy, um, that the internet changed how products were sold, are sold, that sort of thing. Web3 is going to change what products are sold. Um, and so explain that a little bit to this crowd, because I think that's a really important distinction. Sure. So yeah, I think the, the point of that piece was, you know, Visa had just come in and bought this CryptoPunk for $150,000, and what turned out to be, to your point, one of the most brilliant marketing moves of all time. 
it actually was authentic to them, even though it's you know coming in and, and buying an asset that is non-Visa related at all, because I think there's a lot of hope in the crypto community that Visa and MasterCard and the card companies are going to get on board with crypto, and that's going to be a really big unlock. So them coming in is a really good sign. But you can only buy a CryptoPunk and make a splash like that once. And so then Budweiser comes in and does something a little bit more authentic. And I wrote about the challenges there. You know, they opened up the bud.eth wallet, and people were sending them pictures of you know, inappropriate things in their wallet. So it's a brave new world if you're going to go out there uh, and experiment. But you know, the, the nice thing was that they didn't come and just try to do a CryptoPunk. They did a Budweiser-themed uh, NFT mm -hmm. that somebody had made that you collected this different rocket. And so they saw that that happened organically, and they came in and engaged. What I mean when I say that it changes kind of what can be bought, I really do think that it opens up the playing field where you can sell digital assets to your biggest fans. So now if you sell a product, that product has a price point. That price point is meant to reach as, kind of, as many people as possible at the highest profit as possible, but you're still leaving out a big group of fans who are willing to pay a lot more to engage authentically with the brand. I think time proves this really well that you know, if you want to join the community, if you want to join the conversation, if you want to get access to certain events, there are people who are willing to pay a lot of money to you to be able to do that. So there is this whole kind of universe of digital assets that you're able to sell. And price discrimination is maybe the, the wrong term. But you are able to kind of say, like, hey, there's this group of 1,000 passionate fans. What can we build for them digitally that would create an amazing experience that then, you know, at some point, if they want to sell it, they have their out as well. And you know, on that note, like one thing, because I don't want us to fully dismiss Web 2, right? Because Web 2 will stay around, but Web 3 will evolve in a very fast manner. I'll give you a real interesting stat. If you have a timepiece in your wallet, or if you have a minting pass, so in total, that entire universe is about 11,000 people, um, we have a connect your wallet to time.com feature, right? And you can connect your digital wallet to time.com, and it removes the paywall for you, right? So by owning an asset over here, it changes your experience over here. And when you think about that, you know, like you'd be like, how many people are going to do that? Five, right? Six, not like 100 or a thousand, like five, right? Like six people, no. Like 4,000 people have done that in three weeks, right, out of 11,000 people. And so what you start to see is, is that uh, you could all of a sudden connect your wallet and all of a sudden give somebody who had one experience in Web3 a really good frictionless access point into Web2. Now, here's another aspect to think about. You can use analytics software, such as the stuff that Zeta provides or others, and you can look at how the person's engaging on your Web2 site to then program your Discord channel for your Web3 community, which is something that we're doing. So like the, while every week in the Discord, in the Timepieces Discord, we do artist talks, this past week we did a conversation with Deepak Chopra. And like we only made it accessible to people who own timepieces. And you start to see that like, you might think that this is a very small group of people today, and it is, right? Like, uh, OpenSea, which is the largest exchange, has you know, 600,000 active wallets, 700,000 active wallets. But in March of this past year, not last year or the year before, OpenSea had only 50,000 active wallets, right? And so when you all of a sudden start to see Coinbase come on board, or you start to see the sort of ease of fiat to be able to enter into this space without having to go through all the wallets and all the steps, like this is just going to explode at, at a huge sort of uh, trajectory. And I think there's something really interesting there too. So, you know, 
in Web2, if you log into Uber, my Uber activity kind of remains within Uber. If I log into the Domino's app, my Domino's activity remains within the Domino's app. Maybe you can buy credit card data and whatever else. When you log into Time with your wallet, Time can see all of the digital assets that you own. And so I, what I think will happen over time is that people are going to develop analytics around evaluating a wallet when someone comes to a site and creating a unique experience based on what that person owns. That could be NFTs. That could be certain tokens that they own. And so you can really start to target based on where this person has proven by putting money towards it that they really, really care. And so I think that's going to be really interesting, that, you, that everybody has an inventory that they bring with them across the internet. And, and oh, I'm so sorry. No. Just on one point, because I think that that's like such a key aspect. But the other aspect is, is it also respects the consumer's privacy. Yep. And so like, I don't need to know that Packy connected to time.com. It actually doesn't matter. And like, we've spent the last few years thinking that, that there are two truths that I think are false, that we've spent the last few years trying to convince ourselves. One is, is um, that we have to know that it's Packy that's in our ecosystem, and it's not true, right? Like ultimately, like I just need to know what your passions are, and then how can I start to tailor around those passions? Um, the second one is is that Gen Z and below, and even I would say um, aging millennials, which is what I guess I'm Me technically too. like. I'm, I'm an not, aging I'm millennial. I was I'm told not. the other day, which is like such an insulting <laughs> I'm just, comment. I'm just, right? I'm I'm just like, aged. Okay, I was like, it was yeah. just so weird. But that 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 like that there's that 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 people don't care about ownership they like anymore, right? That people are not buying and owning anymore. That's not true. Like you might be seeing that in the real world, but in the digital world. Like what you're seeing is, is that there's actually a voracious appetite to own. And the reason I would argue that that exists is because people are spending way more time online. And in the past year, to the crisis that we've all faced, right, where we were all at home, and I don't know where all of you were, but like it sucked. And like, and, and, and we're sitting there, and like we realize how much time we're spending online. And I think that that actually had this moment where it shifted in people's minds that like, wow. I'm really spending a lot of time online, so why would I want to be online as a renter if I have this opportunity to be online as an owner? 100%. Uh, let, let's talk about the flip side of this. We're, we're clearly in a bull market for, for this sort of mindset, and, and, and the assets that people are purchasing or engaging with, it, it's working. People are feeling good about being part of these communities, right? And, and you know, I think this is probably the way people felt about using Facebook you know, in the late 2000s a little bit. I think that's changed a little, you know, it, it, you know, 10 years on. What about the, and you know, we're not going to get into creator coins, but I know a lot of people who don't want to go there because they feel like they run the risk. If you buy into my creator coin and then it, it, it turns into this valuable thing, there's downside risk if it goes the opposite way here. So I'm curious, is, is from a marketing standpoint, you know, you want to be a fast follow, you want to be authentic, um, you got to be a bit careful here because the, the risk is, is that you launch a series of something and people put their hard earned ETH to it or Solana or you know, whatever, and then it goes the opposite way, do you run the risk of, of degrading your brand a bit? I think that's really tough. So, I mean, if you look at volume on OpenSea, which is yep. the biggest NFT marketplace, it's still strong, right? I think there's been a yep. billion dollars transacted so far this month on OpenSea, but it's down from in August, in September, when there were $3 billion. I think that's a really healthy thing. So right now, people are viewing NFTs as art for the most part because those are the biggest sales. But NFTs are a non-fungible token that sits behind something and shows that it's unique and that somebody owns it. 
And so I wouldn't think about it from a speculative perspective or that you want people to spend thousands and thousands of dollars or many, many ETH on the thing that you're selling. Uh, that might be something where you, you're, you know, you're able to serve one group that way. But I would think about what happens when you can give people ownership of a digital asset related to my brand. And that might be art, that might be music, that could really be any digital thing that's backed by a non-fungible token. And so I think about creating experiences around that, that whether the price is $100,000 or $1,000 or $100, people still can interact with your brand in a positive way by owning that thing. Um, I, I think I, I could not agree more. And I mean, I think right now the easiest thing for people to look at from an NFT perspective is art and collectibles. Um, but I would argue, you know, if you look at the medical field, right, you can easily see how uh, the token plus a blockchain, it doesn't have to be necessarily Ethereum or Solana, can exist, um, you know, to verify can, uh, patients' data, you know, across medical space. Um, if you look at the sports arenas, and you know, I know you have, I believe, uh, the, uh, the the you know co-owner of the Philadelphia 76ers coming up. Like, I mean, NFTs could be an incredible validator for the ticketing industry, and actually takes out sort of the entire scalping sort of uh, arena. If you look at education, you could actually decentralize universities, um, which is a conversation I have quite a bit by. Um, using certain sort of protocols to verify a, a student's sort of participation and then allow the university to burn the tokens in return for a degree. Um, like these are all potentials for what this, this has to offer. Um, I would say at the highest end, when you look at the trend of Web3, the macro trend is 100% correct. Like I stand by that yeah. uh, uh, infinitely over. If you look at what you said, which is like, will there be ups and downs? 100%. Yeah. And like my fear is um, people who put their entire net worth into NFTs. Like I think you have to be very responsible about that. And with time, we thought about that a lot. And I've said to the community, I will not talk about floor price. I will not address. Yeah. Um, I will not buy back. I will not play gimmicks. I will yep. not manipulate price. We are playing a long-term game of values ultimately create value. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, you know, I want to, we only have a few minutes left here, but I want to talk about something I think is really interesting um, to this audience too. And I know Packy's been involved with it. I'm sure you've been watching very closely the idea of a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. And, and Packy just wrote a post yesterday and he came on uh, my show, Fast Money, last night to talk about it. And it's pretty fascinating. Um, it's, we want to buy the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution. Literally, there's a, a DAO, this organization. Explain what going on. Explain what you want to do. This this yeah. copy of the, the Constitution for sale at Sotheby's at auction this Thursday. And it seems like a new way of doing things. And I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts about thinking about publishing um, with DAOs also. Yeah. So a DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization. Think of it as a digital version of an LLC where, again, it's kind of coordinated by governance tokens that gives everybody who contributes to the DAO a vote in the DAO proportional to their tokens. Right now, we're trying to buy one of the 11 remaining copies of the US Constitution when it goes up for auction uh, on Thursday night at Sotheby's. The price will be somewhere between 20 and $35 million, depending on where the auction ends up. And so a group of thousands of people across the internet have come together at this point to buy the US Constitution. I think it's a great example of kind of very, very early innings of what can happen when you use tokens and, and NFTs and DAOs and these different tools to coordinate groups of people towards a mission online. I think this is the first of many, many examples that we'll see of groups kind of coming together sporadically uh, and achieving something together they couldn't achieve alone. Uh, so you know, this one, I think, is just obviously uh, very historically relevant. It's the US Constitution. But I also think that it's a, it's a, it speaks to kind of the similarities between 
you know, the, the United States and Web3. It's about decentralized ownership and governance and everybody yeah. has a voice and, and all of that. So are you guys all going to make it here? Are you, are we, are I we think gonna we're going to buy the Constitution. I yeah. think we're all going to make it. All right. And so what do you think of this? Because you, your organization, I think the quote that you had when, you know, was like preserving the objectivity of the red border for the next hundred years. When you think about this, this seems like the sort of thing that would be on the cover of time if, if Packy's crew is able to do this, not to give them too much credit for, <laughs> for Constitution Dow. But what are you thinking about? It and time should step up and join this group here, man. Love that. <laughs> what? I mean, you have some big benefactors over there. I mean, I, they got some chains knocking around, I'm sure, in some wallet there, you know. I, I feel very strongly about the Dow movement. Um, uh, I, I actually, uh, when I saw that that's what you all were going to do, <laughs> I smiled and um, I, I know exactly what I thought. Um, I said, you're going to win this. Like, there's actually, like, I don't think people realize how powerful these DAOs are when a group of people come together. Um, I, like, it's, it, if you don't win this one, I will be shocked um, because uh, it's not one person putting up $20 million. It's, like, a huge group of people that will put it up. And, like, I just don't see how... Like, I, I think it's going to pose a really interesting moment and in question for um, DAO's places in corporate America. And um, you know, for, for me, I'm actually very bullish on DAOs. Um, I would not uh, turn time into a DAO. Um, uh, you know, like there's certain things that, I mean, we're privately owned mm -hmm. you know, by Mark and Lynn. And, uh, but like, there are things that you could do with DAOs that uh, are separate from uh, you know, buying constitutions. And like a real example I would give you from a publishing perspective is um, we own Time for Kids. Time for Kids is a really important asset of ours. And when I think about that, right, like you could technically, I'm not saying we're doing this, but I'm saying you could technically um, create a DAO for teachers that reward teachers for the best mm -hmm. contributions that they make towards content that's read and engaged with on Time for Kids limit the number of teachers and create a criterion and allow teachers to redistribute wealth based off of the DAO and the community. And like in my mind, I think about stuff like that all the time because ultimately, like our North Star at time is this notion of build a better future, which is an optimistic future, it's mm -hmm. an inclusive future, it's a positive future, but it's also one that you know, um, uh, moves us from being uh, an observer to a participant. And I think that uh, this structure will prove a lot when it takes place, and, and I actually, I'm willing to bet anyone a dollar if you've seen trading places uh, <laughs> that that they win. Uh, uh, but I think that when when you win, everyone is going to drop their jaw and say, "What is a DAO?" And for a while, you know, like people have just been questioning it. But I think that this is going to actually be your visa moment, as you would say. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so, too. Just like everyone was asking, what's a Beeple um, back in February? Um, well, listen, this was amazing. Um, I think the takeaway here for Web 2 marketing is uh, in Web 3, there is no spoon. How's that? Um, and, and maybe you guys will have to go back 20 years to figure that one out. Um, listen, thank you, Packy, of Not Boring. Thank you, Keith, of time and time pieces here. And obviously, thank you to David Steinberg and the whole team here um, at Zeta. It was our pleasure to speak with you guys. So thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you.
Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.